0: Um, but it starts from exposure. It starts from having an open mind. It co- it starts from allowing yourselves to, to be vulnerable. It's, it comes from understanding that you don't have all the answers.
1: Hi, I'm Jessica.
2: And I'm Girish.
1: And this is the Destiny Benders podcast, where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators.
2: And in each episode, we'll be meeting with destiny benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Our guest today is Vern Granger, Director of Admissions at the University of Connecticut and also the Chair-Elect of the National Association for College Admissions Counselors. Vern, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure being here.
1: Thank you, Vern. It's great to meet you.
2: Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: The pleasure The pleasure is all
2: mine. So, Vert, let's get started. How did you end up getting to where you are today? Just maybe walk us through your journey a little bit, and then we'll get into some details about what you do and what's going on.
0: So, no, you know, I've been at the University of Connecticut for a little over three years. Um, You know, my professional career has been in the enrollment space. So, you know, working at getting my start at North Carolina State University and then moving to University of Tennessee, the Ohio State University and by law, You have to say D when you say Ohio State. And then you know, being here at UConn for you know the past few years. So you know it's been a great journey. I mean, I think it's in some ways it's been sort of smooth because you know, when I graduated as an undergrad, I moved, you know, into working at universities and working in the enrollment space. And you know, really, you know, it was my calling and something I just truly enjoy, and I still enjoy to this day. And and recently, I was elected by NACAC's membership as the chair-elect, and so I'm currently doing that position. And, you know, it's an, it's an honor to, you know, be elected by your peers. I mean, I don't think there's any bigger honor than to be elected by your peers. And so, you know, serving in this role, representing the profession, um, the organization that has been very, very important not only to myself but other professionals in our industry as a whole. Um it is just flattering.
2: I'm curious though, Vern, you yeah. I'm, I'm assuming you didn't go to college thinking I'm gonna go work in admissions. So how did that happen? Yeah. Maybe talk talk to us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there is no undergraduate degree in admissions or enrollment. So so that answers that question. But you know when I was an undergrad, you know, I think like a lot of us, I mean we have ideas of what we want to go into as a career. So, you know, I, I was like, you know, your normal 18, 19 year old. I thought I wanted to do several different programs. So whether it be law, whether it be you know, international relations, business, you know, that I had a bunch of different interests that I wanted to go into. So, you know, as an undergrad, I, I, I'm originally from New Jersey, but I did my undergrad and my grad work. In North Carolina, and my undergrad was at um, University of North Carolina at Wilmington, a a coastal university um, in the southeastern part of North Carolina. And, you know, I I had an amazing um, university experience and got to be involved in so many different things and. You know, one of those things was, you know, working and, you know, working in the admissions office as an undergrad and giving tours and, you know, getting to see that side of it and realizing that, hey, this is something that I like, but, you know, by no means was I thinking about it being a career, even though, you know, I was working in the admissions office, I did not put one and one together and think, oh, well, hey, these are people who, graduated university and, and have been doing this for a career. It was just, you know, for me to put a little spending money in my pocket and, and, and again, just do something that I thought was enjoyable. And so, you know, that led to me really, you know, piquing my interest in, and asking questions and getting to learn about different pathways for for folks who were looking to work at universities. And so as I was nearing graduation, learned about an opportunity at North Carolina State University and moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, which is about two hours away and started working in the admissions office at at NC State. And it was just crazy as I think about it right now. I think about where I'm sitting right now and, and the position that I'm at and to think, when I was that age and starting my first job that I would be here, absolutely never would have thought that because yeah, I'm a first generation university student. I'm a, I was a student of color, um, You know, in my field and in higher education, there weren't many folks who looked like me. Um, and so I did not have necessarily those role models to point to to say, okay, they did they look like me, they're doing it. So hey, I can end up doing it. So, you know, to get to where I'm at right now is is still crazy to think about. And, you know, I still think somebody's gonna knock on the door and say, well, you know, the gig is up and we know who you are and 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 get out of that seat. And and you know, thus far it's worked out great and owe it to so many people who've helped me throughout this journey. I mean, no one ever gets to an ultimate point by themselves. And, you know, it's just a lot of folks who've gotten me to that point. And, but yeah, I have, I'm so glad that I had those folks in my life to, you know, again, help put me in this direction to what is absolutely my, my career, my passion.
1: So Vern. You said you're, you mentioned you're a chair elect for NACAC, which for our listeners who are not American, and there are quite a few of them, um, yeah. that's the National Association for College Admission Counseling. Do I have that Correct. right? Correct. Or the, in the United States. Um, and well, so you, it's actually,
0: I, I'm sorry, sorry for interrupting you, Justin, no, no, But no, um okay. but, but yeah, the organization is based in, in Washington, D.C., suburban Washington, D.C., but it's, it's it's an international um, organization and in that we have members throughout the globe. So I apologize for interrupting, but no, uh, that's
1: okay. Sense. I just wanted to give a little bit of context for our listeners who aren't in the U S and might not be aware of NACAC. Yeah. Um, and so you said it was an honor, which it absolutely is to be elected by your peers. So you're chair elect and you'll be chair of NACAC next year. Can you give a little bit of insight into you know, how did your peers choose you? What qualities? What leadership did you show in the past, however many years? What have you been involved in to get yourself to the point where your peers said, "Yes, I want to vote for Vern Granger to be the next, you know, chair of of NACAC." Wow, that's a
0: that's a serious that's a serious question. You you actually not I'm, I'm going to have to dig deep for coming up with this answer, but. <laughs> You know, in my years in the profession, and again, NACAC, the role that it served for me is probably similar to a lot of other professionals and how different organizations have helped cultivate them to help build their brand, to expand their network. You know, NACAC had the same impact on me. So, you know, I started off going to the conference and sitting in on sessions and again, just seeing, being exposed to all of these folks who were seen as leaders in the profession or leaders within the organization. And something that I've never been afraid of is is just going up and, and meeting folks and asking for them to tell me, their story and 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 simply listening. I think that that's an underrated skill that 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 folks have. It's just the ability just to, you know, understand where you are and understand that there is still this path that you have to get to get to that point. And how better to learn about that than just you know sit down and actually have conversations with with individuals. So. You know, hearing how different folks got there and, and protect particularly of interest, you know, other professionals of color and, and hearing about about their pathways and how they got to where they were wanted to go to. And, and, and just these conversations and my exposure with the organization, it helped me to become a better professional in my current job at the University of Connecticut. Um, I oversee international admissions, and so as someone as an undergrad and someone who did not take their first trip abroad until they were in their mid twenties, you know it was really enlightening for me to you know talk to these professionals who you know help to build these programs at their institutions, and so it was it was those type of things to really learn more about the profession, um, to get the opportunity to meet other colleagues and have the opportunity to present on different topics, to go to different workshops. Um, and and these things just that you, you build on one thing after another, and those led to, you know, leadership opportunities in some regional organizations, and they led to being invited to speak at at different schools and it led to being a part of a program the old, like, program like the Overseas Schools Project where they invite US administrators to go overseas and speak about the American educational and university system and all of these things, you know, it wasn't just one thing, it was all of these things collectively that I think exposed and, and allowed you know, other professionals—the 26,000 professionals in the NACAC organization—to learn about me and learn about my passion and 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 the things that that make me tick. You know, my my passion for. DEI and diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and the belief in how that is foundational to the, to the educational experience for all students. So, how do we bring more students from underserved populations? How do we bring more diverse students from not only in the United States but throughout the world to come to our educational institutions? And I think I think professionals saw that. They got to 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 see my my, me and work in and, and take part in different leadership opportunities and and I think but I think the most important thing is that they got to see that I was not doing all of these things just as a way to build a resume I did all of these things, because again I was passionate about the work that I did, um, I wanted to become a better professional. I believed in the notion of paying it forward and others helped me and how do I now serve and benefit others. And, and so my hope was that the membership saw those things in electing me to the chair elect role um, and then ultimately be serving in the chair role uh, later on this year.
2: Where does the passion come from? I know when you spoke about entering into the profession, you talked about there wasn't any role models uh, or yeah. there weren't any role models. And because you know, representation matters, you just alluded a little bit to DEI. And I'm assuming your focus as chair elect and chair is to create more opportunities. So there's so many things I want to kind of, uh, yeah. you know, peel here. But first and foremost, where does your passion come from?
0: it comes from the fact that i am a direct beneficiary of the the notion and the belief that being exposed to you know higher education education as a whole and Others being exposed to students of different backgrounds, different races, nationalities, all of those things are reasons why I have become the person that I have become and, and why I have been, I've been able to grow. I'm just, I am passionate and adamant about the fact that the more opportunities we give to individuals the more, the better their chances of realizing the the great opportunities that that are out there. Um, But it starts from exposure. It starts from having an open mind. It it starts from allowing yourselves to to be vulnerable. It, It comes from understanding that you don't have all the answers. You know, I think all of those things are what make my passion um, the way that it is. First generation student, my parents were amazing and I, I feel like I have the two best parents in the entire world and they tried to give me everything that they could to help me grow. But there were some things that that I had to learn on my own and some of these things I had to learn the hard way and you don't know what you don't know. a lot of times it's not the individual's fault for why, they are in the situation that they are in. It's it's a lot of times they just were not exposed to it or they never had the opportunity to learn about it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We talk about destiny bending on this podcast, right? That's the whole idea behind the podcast. And we talk about destiny bending moments where people's lives are changed. Could you also maybe think about maybe another instance or a moment where your life basically changed, maybe even related to the career? And then at the same time, maybe even think about or maybe reflect on where you may have changed somebody else's life or a destiny bending moment that you afforded to somebody else.
0: So, you know, I think about, you know, I gave the example of how, you know, I did not do my first trip abroad until, you know, my mid, actually my later 20s. And so it was a part of uh, the Fulbright program. So I got accepted into the Fulbright International Education Administrators Program, which to this day, is one of the events that totally changed me in so many different ways. So, so what it was is I was in, uh, got the opportunity to go with a cohort to Germany, and I was there for about a month, and you know, really learning about the educational system in Germany. So, it's through seminars and meetings and workshops, but it's also you know those opportunities to really just get to explore. And, and one of the moments that, you know, that, that made me realize that, you know, even though in my mind I was going to just a place that literally was on a, a different part of the world and I had no exposure to. I remember going out with a, a colleague of mine and we went out, we went out to a bar and we went out later to go dancing at this place that I was at the, the dance club we were at. I was just—I don't know why. To the, when I think about it now, I'm like, "Wow, why 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 was I so shocked?" But I was at this place, and then they played a set of like Jay Z and Notorious B.I.G. and and I'm just thinking to myself, you know, "Wow, they—you know—the type of music I listen to is very very big there." And I and I'm looking at the other the folks at the place, and they're dancing and they're singing the words and. You know, and it was just amazing. It was amazing to me. And and just being exposed to that and seeing that experience, just it just hit home to me that, wow, I wish that so many other people who I grew up with had the opportunity to be with me at that moment, to actually see and experience the similarities that that we all have. And so from that moment on, I had the international bug. It, it was something that I was passionate about to be able to go and travel and, and get the opportunity for me to not only learn about different cultures and how similar we are, but for them to actually see somebody who looks like me and to have the opportunity to interact with somebody like me and, and understand that the caricature that they may have had about Black men was not true. That narrative was not the case. And so, you know, that's something I do a lot now here at at UConn as I talk to particularly Black men who are undergrads here and talk to them about, you know, considering you know, doing a semester abroad, and and right now it's 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 kind of tough because we're still in the middle of a pandemic, and 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 it's not as easy. But but just getting them to think about doing a, a an educational abroad opportunity somewhere in in the world, and and just talking about how those type of experiences they will learn more just as much about themselves as they do about that culture that country that they're going to. And so, you know, that life-changing experience for me, you know, again back when I was in my upper 20s, it is something that has stayed with me to this day. And that little 2-3 hour snippet in my life and and just being blown away mentally and just how that absolutely changed my worldview and my perspective and made me even more interested in just quenching that thirst and just you know just seeing the world and and learning about others and having them learn from, from me as
2: well. So that's a great point, Varn, because, you know, music in this case is transcending, right? Absolutely. And, and so it's, you know, yeah, It's such a, that's a great example of globalization, right? Of internationalization. Yeah.
1: I was going to say, I was really pleased that you mentioned study abroad because a lot of what you were saying about um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and why it's important in an admissions perspective, you know, bringing yeah. in students from, and these are you know domestic American students, but from many different backgrounds and many different situations. But study abroad can also do exactly the same things on a campus. Um, and international students do exactly those same things on a campus that uh, diversity equity inclusion aims to do and and its goals and objectives. And I think because a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are working in international education and international student recruitment and international yeah. admissions. So for for those people in that field, that's the core of why we do what we do. Um, Maybe many of them don't think of it as diversity, equity, and inclusion, but international student admissions, um, you know, we're bringing in international students, uh, sometimes revenue is is thrown in there because of the money they pay in tuition dollars and things like that. But the reality is, is what they're bringing to a campus is so much more than that. Um, As the director of admissions at the University of Connecticut, can you speak a little bit about the value of international students who are coming to study on your programs?
0: Yeah, yeah. And Jessica, I'm glad that you brought that up and with the connection of DEI and international education, because I literally just had a conversation with a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Marilyn Jackson from San Francisco State University, and she's somebody who's in my cohort when I was in um, that program in Germany. And that's one of the things that we talk about is how folks do not necessarily connect International education with the whole diversity, equity and inclusion, you know, you know, when folks hear DEI, they immediately focus on race, ethnicity and first generation, um, whereas DEI is meant to be much more broad and and inclusive and, and includes um, international education and so you know, as I think about that in my role at the University of Connecticut, and and one of those is to try to build a community of students that will ultimately add to the UConn student experience and help prepare them for life after graduation. And so a big part of that is being able to interact whether it be in the classrooms, whether it be in the residence halls, whether it be in the organizations or seminars with the diverse um, array of students. So that absolutely includes international students. And if the events of today don't illustrate the importance of how it is, how important it is for us to learn about what is happening outside of our borders and how, What happens outside of our borders directly impacts our life in the United States, allowing our students to to, again, allow them to be in an environment where we're enrolling students from all of the parts of the state of Connecticut. And, and, you know, Connecticut is a very tiny state, but Connecticut has a lot of geographic and racial, ethnic income disparities. Like a lot of other places, and so it is important that we are enrolling students from throughout the state of Connecticut, but throughout the country as well, and and throughout the world. You know, one of the things that you know I love, you know, during lunch breaks, just to go walk around campus and go through the, the student union, just to again, just walk, observe, hear the the exposures, the impact of uconn on these students and so first thing is it's really exciting from my vantage point to walk around and you hear you know different languages that are spoken and and so that's a big thing and 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 that's that again that speaks to again we our ability to be able to to bring in um students from all over the place but just talking about that 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 students from outside of the united states you know you uconn like a lot of other institutions in the united states the majority of our international students are coming from china and 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 you know so we absolutely value um, the students that are coming from china and they absolutely add to the educational experience but in my opinion to even provide an even more enhanced experience we want to enroll students from other countries. So other parts of Asia and South America, Central America, Europe, Africa, um, all of these different places, the more we can enroll students from a global perspective all over the place, ultimately it is going to benefit the educational experiences of our students. And, and not just the students who are from Connecticut or from the United States, but also those students from from throughout the globe who are coming here and adding to the whole UConn educational experience, who are adding and benefiting uh, the UConn community. And, and that is really if we're able to do a great job of that, then we are going to be able to best prepare our undergraduates to go out in the world and ultimately be successful. Because the the graduates who are gonna be the most marketable, the ones who are gonna be the most competitive in today's global global economy are those who have that global, that international perspective, that worldview because of how critical it is to everything that that is going on in, in in our society.
2: You know, before we started recording, we were talking about TikTok and Snapchat. So, and you were saying
0: TikTok, (laughs) TikTok.
2: snap snap talk what was that snap talk yeah snapbook whatever you said uh, you have a daughter who's kind of uh maybe educating you uh, on some of these things and and yeah. I I I, rec- I, re- I relate to that because I have daughters who are always teaching me about tiktok and everything else and I think I'm sure Jessica's sons are also teaching her about some of these things so the reason I bring that up for it is there are these newer tools that are out there. Yeah. Are you planning on using or leveraging any of those tools in your role either at UConn or yeah. at NACAC? Yeah, yeah. So
0: we we are actively having those conversations about how, how are we able to get in front of individuals in their in, in in their environment. One of the things that COVID showed us was that many of us were unprepared um, as far as our ability to be able to communicate our message if it was not going to be in front of it directly in front of them. And so, you know, we as an institution, NACAC as an organization, you know, we are having those those same type of considerations and conversations and thinking about that. So how are we better leveraging social media and, and doing a better job of getting our message that way? are there platforms out there that allow us to be able to deliver our message out there to a wider array of people in their time zones at all hours of the day no matter you know no matter where they are and so thinking about those things as well thinking about how we message and how we communicate to individuals and not just have it be a one size fits all because the needs are going to be different for different populations. And you take again African Americans, you know, if you just you have the mindset that that all African Americans think the same, you know, you market one way and you're gonna be able to attract African American students, you're you, you know, you you're mistaken because we're not a monolith. I mean, we have first generation, we have multi-generation, we have individuals of varying economic degrees, professions. You know, who have the same um, successes and challenges as 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 many other folks out there. And so recognizing those differences and, and, and building that into how we communicate and how we market and how we provide opportunities for those individuals to learn more about our institution.
1: Thank you. I'm gonna just, I don't know, clarify something, make a point. So you keep mentioning first generation. Uh-huh. And I'm actually first generation. My parents didn't go to college, but uh-huh. I had never heard this term first generation yeah. um, or first gen until I started working at the University of Texas in San mm-hmm. Antonio. And prior to that, all my career had been in Europe and the UK. So, for those listeners who maybe like me didn't really know what first gen or first generation means, can you explain a little bit yeah. about that and why it's important, perhaps in the, the diversity, equity, inclusion work or absolutely. as international?
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Jessica, because it is absolutely important to understand. And in our space, when we talk about first generation, we're talking about students whose parents did not enroll either enroll or graduate at a post secondary institution. And so so that's the general definition of how we define a first generation student. Some institutions are going to define it differently. Some are going to be, you know, you have exposure to, you you've the, the parents attended a university or or they they graduated with at least an associate's or graduated with with a bachelor's degree. But but you get the gist that that it deals with students whose parents have not um, have have gone on to post-secondary education And, and the reason why that's important for us in the enrollment space and and why you know we are we do so much to try to impact that is you know i gave the example of my own upbringing and not having parents who who went to college and and how That impacted my ability to to not only learn about the college experience, but just be exposed to different things. And as universities and wanting to be able to impact the lives, help individuals become better selves. And and we think that enrolling at a university is one of those ways. By the way, I will say that it's not the only way, but but it is one of the pathways that is tried and true and, and is something that the evidence shows is, is very successful in helping individuals grow and, and, and better themselves. And so, you know, as a first-generation student, there were things that my parents were not able to impress upon me or educate to me. Not because they didn't want to, it's just because they just did not know anything about it. And again... You know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. And so thinking about my work, it's understanding that not all students are going to have access to, for instance, a, a individual counselor or, or go to a college counselor at their school because their college counselors or guidance counselors or school counselors have loads of 400 to one, or they are from communities that are resource challenged, And so they may not have the exposure to um, the abundance of advanced placement courses or international baccalaureate curriculums or honors courses like other students may have. Um, So it's understanding those differences in exposure and how we as a university can help fill some of those deficits that students may, may be experiencing. It's understanding that and how it translates to the work that we're doing um, when we're evaluating an applicant for admissions. And so understanding that, again, not every student has had the opportunity to have the same type of education. And there are going to be some students who, you know, we're, we're talking about the first generation um population but but something that uh, uh, something i do want to clarify when you're talking about first generation students is that you know even that population is not a monolith and there are first generation students of varying income levels and 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 the like but generally speaking you know first generation students are going to be some students who may not have that exposure um, or may not be privy to the, the types of you know, important information that is valuable in understanding the college admissions professional. So, you know, how do we in our jobs try to fill that gap? And so it's making sure that we are increasing our recruitment activities to include high schools and, and communities where there are high percentages of first generation or low income students, or again, those underrepresented populations. It's thinking about how we are reviewing applications and making sure that we all are employing um, a holistic evaluation of an applicant, which means simply put that we're not just making a decision based on one factor or one number, but by a, an abundance of different factors of information we can get in the application and evaluating that application, both quantitative factors, but also those non-cognitive variables, such as personal statements, such as recommendations, essays, you know, all of that additional information that provide context and help us to better understand this student and and how they could be a fit at our institutions and then taking it to the next step and working with our partners at our institutions and making sure that these students who were admitting who we know can be successful at our institutions but understand that there is some additional support that that we as an institution want to make sure we are providing to help these first generation students or students from underserved populations be able to be successful. Because something I learned very early in my professional career from a professional mentor of mine is that if you make the decision to enroll that student, you are taking responsibility for that student. And for you not to do so, is educational malpractice. And so making sure that you're creating that horizontal structure from the pipeline, from uh, learning about the university in to how we are reviewing the application, how we are making sure that we have the financial resources to help those students be successful. And then ultimately when they come on our campuses that we are doing everything we can to provide these talented, capable students who we know can be successful to help them realize their potential, you know, your, your question is is such an important one, because I think it's something that we as higher education, you know, we've evolved in that over the, over the years. And, you know, we've gone from the mindset that, you know, here, the information's here, you could find it, to understand that there are drastic differences in the exposure that our students have to learning about the institutions and learning about maneuvering around the admissions process at our institutions. And a big part of that is just not being in a household where you have family members who have gone on to college. That simple, It, it, it sounds so simple, but it is so impactful.
2: Lauren, your passion for this work really comes through. Uh, I can see it in your body language. Our viewers can, but I can see it just <laughs> can see it. Thank you. You know, I, I, you know, and there's so much more we could be discussing, right? I, I know we talked about access. We could talk about financial access, et cetera. And I yeah. feel that that's a whole another episode that we can do <laughs> now. We want to be cognizant of your time as well. I know we're not coming up on the hour, but before we wrap up, we would like to do a, you know, just kind of do something light. Uh, we we do these yeah. uh, quick fire questions at the end, to, just to kind of get to know you personally on, on the side. I hear you're a big sports fan. Yes. Um, so I'm curious. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know you're at UConn. UConn right. used to be a powerhouse at one point with college basketball. I'm a Kansas Jayhawk. So I hear you're a big NFL fan as well. Uh, what's yeah, your favorite NFL team and why is it the Kansas City Chiefs? so so you know
0: my i am a dallas cowboy fan and that is something that you know you don't see many folks who grew up in south jersey which is the domain of the philadelphia eagles or new york giants or or the new york jets to be fans of the dallas cowboys
1: so i have a question for you then about your trip to germany yeah um when you were in germany tell us about your most memorable meal what did you eat there that was maybe something totally new for you and it's kind of stuck with you?
0: Yeah. So I had rabbit when I was there and I was not exposed to rabbit growing up or as an undergrad or in my professional. So yeah, that was interesting having rabbit and, you know, when it came on my plate, I thought it was chicken because, you know, (laughs) ultimately, you (laughs) you know, you always default, if you don't know what it is, default the chicken. So Yeah, I thought it was chicken and I was like, well, it's a little tougher. Than chicken, but maybe they overcooked it or it doesn't have the same taste, but, you know, maybe that's how Germans, you know, cook chicken. chicken. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. So, so having rabbit was interesting. Yeah. It's like when you get, it's like when I went to Australia and, you know, what's the one thing as an American, you got to try when you're in Australia. On the Barbie. What? No, Vegemite. Oh, Vegemite. Vegemite. (laughs) Right. You got to put Vegemite on something. So I'm in Sydney and You know, I have Vegemite on on a piece of bread and I eat it. And, you know, again, it's it's not that awful image that I had in my head. And so, yeah, it was it was really it was it was I'm glad that I did
2: it. So, yeah, that's a great motto, right? Glad that I did it. Like, yeah, I'm glad that I did it. I'm glad that I
0: did it. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, when you think about it, when would I ever
2: if on my own, would I
0: ever decide to have Vegemite or have have um, have rabbit.
2: Well Vern, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much. Uh you have done a lot. You are doing a lot. Like I said, we wish you the very best with both your roles, especially the NACAC one, because that has far reaching impact. We appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you both.
0: I I enjoyed this conversation. I I appreciate it. And the best of luck with the podcast.
1: Thank you. for listening. Join us next week when we speak with Jenny Tassel, the college counselor at the International School of Panama.